everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. I am Donovan Riley, joined by the Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Rocking and rolling. We are coming to you from the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the lower level of HT headquarters in Beijing, China. Are they competing in the uh, uh, Winter nope. Olympics this year? Uh, oh. I think they are. Oh, that's North Korea. That's not going. North Korea <laughs> had to take a pass. Uh, now, you know, I was just thinking communists and, and uh, winter sports. Well, since I think China owns the currency of most first world countries at this point, I don't think we have much of a choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they pretty much make their own rules. Yeah, I think I think uh, wasn't wasn't it South Korea that said that the North Koreans could compete with them? That was so generous. Yes, yeah, it was very much so. Uh, I was talking with my my oldest son the other day about this. About he was arguing that uh, we have to worry about China because of their military power, and I said, no, that's not how it works. China just has to threaten to stop allowing us to manufacture anything in China. Yep. There's there's something even more powerful than military force, and that is the power of the market. Hmm. I said everybody wants to you know everybody wants to to do wrong by China until you find out that your iPhone isn't going to be shipped, <laughs> the iPhone 11 isn't yours anymore because they're not going to allow it. So it's not it's not all it's not all right handed power. That's right. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, no, you you can't. You can't move your factory over here. You can't, you can't use our, our citizens as your workers. It doesn't work that way. You can't have your fancy toys. That's right. Exactly. If you're going to have that attitude, we're just going to take our toys home. And, <laughs> and, then, and, and then WADA and so forth says, steroid abuse. We don't see any abuse of steroids. You're welcome to come to the Olympics. Systematic governmental sponsored uh, human, hmm. uh, what is it? Uh, what do you call them? Physical uh, enhancement. What's the word? Draw a blank here. Bionic? P- no. Um, uh, what's the what's the the thing for um, uh, performance enhancing drugs? Good night. Oh, PEDs. Yeah. Perform- P-E-D. Performance enhancing drugs. That's what I was trying to find. All Sorry, right. folks. I'll I'll wake up. I'll, I'll get rolling here in a second. Oh. It's been a three coffee kind of day, as we were saying, talking about before the show. But, every day is uh, a three coffee yeah, kind of day for every me. Day. Well, it's February, and uh, apparently I was just talking with some people last night, and it must be the t- that time of year, at least in the upper Midwest, it's that time of year where I think everybody is sick to a greater or lesser degree, at least it seems like it. Yeah, I and am. people are having to work sick and go to back to school, not fully recovered from being sick, and then they get a secondary or a tertiary sickness, and it's the middle of winter, and people are starting to pine for spring, so they're grumpy about that, and... Everybody's just grumpy. Just have another cup of coffee. Yeah, have another cup. Of, that's what I say. Have another cup of coffee. Go for the AeroPress. Top yourself off. You know, open up those neural pathways and just let fly. So, I don't know. I think I don't maybe, know. That's one of the things my wife commented on when she first moved out here is how obsessed people in the Midwest are about the weather. Yeah, and the, the panic. I mean, we have got right. we've got probably like six, seven inches on the ground from the last couple of mm-hmm. days. You know, and they're forecasting another eight to twelve and Friday and like. What do you need? I don't know. Um, we, right. we stock our pantry all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, we always well, have milk and bread. I'm, you know. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just me or what, but I, I actually said at the beginning of winter this year, said to my wife, I said to some of our people, I'm not even going to pay attention to the weather anymore, the temperature. I'm just going to do what I got to do. And if the weather's not going to permit me to do what I need to do, then I'll just stay home and Netflix and chill. But... When it's below zero, how cold does it need to be before you say it doesn't really matter anymore? Yeah, it's just right. a number. 
It's like the I, U.S. national debt. The U.S. debt is just a number at this point. I remember last year I had somebody call me on a Friday and say, you know, they weren't going to be at church on Sunday because of the weather. And I was mm-hmm. like, do you have any idea? And, it, of course, it all blew over. It was not a big deal. Still yeah. didn't come to church. And I'm like, you can't plan your life around a forecast. No, just go. Yeah. And especially in the Midwest, you if you grew up here, you're used to it. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't ever adapt to it, but you acclimate. You learn how right. to acclimate. Yeah, it just takes, you know, plan, plan you know, to drive safe and take, right, take exactly. your time and, you know. Versus, as you pointed out, saying, well, I'm not going to go because it's too cold. Yeah. Or it's snowing and I don't know how bad it's going to be in three hours. Or maybe they won't have plowed the lot or maybe the dry, right. you know, the sidewalk won't be, you right. know. Uh, whatever yeah, it's it almost salted. apocalyptic the way that people in the Midwest deal with weather. <laughs> they just want a crisis. That's it. Right. I think it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's just bored. The, it's winter. Yeah, time. just We're jazz bored. things up. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the dead of winter. There's nothing going on. What can we do? <laughs> oh. Let's have a snow apocalypse or something or a snow cyclone. Know. Well, we just podcast. That makes it easy. Exactly. Exactly. And I just look out my window and uh, give thanks to God for the gifts of creation, which... Go. It brings us to our text for this podcast. Uh, today we have chosen to look at The Genius of Luther's Theology by Robert Kolb and Charles P. Arend, hmm. which was published by CPH, Concordia Publishing House. And what year was this published, do you think? Oh, not that long ago. 2010, maybe? 2008. Oh, okay. There you go. 2008, yeah. Uh, again, like the Pinema book, this is a really good overview introduction examination of luther's theology and i think it's it's a little bit denser than pinema but yet uh, that might just be the paper stock it's, uh-huh. it's, it's it's physically denser than pinema's book but also just in terms of where it goes if yeah. you know bob and, and chuck or you're familiar with with professor kolb and professor aaron's work in other books and lectures and so forth they're they're so good as scholars, They're, they really get Luther. They understand Reformation theology so well. They're so knowledgeable about it that uh, they're very good at communicating it. They're just academics, so sometimes they get a little too involved. Would that be yeah, the way to say maybe. it? maybe. It's just like one click above lay reading. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. it's like, you know, I, I'll just speak for myself. You get so deep into, like, Luther hmm. that you you lose track of the fact that the people you're talking to may not have spent the last 20 years reading Luther and researching mm-hmm, and, right. and living with him and, and digesting and, and going through everything he's saying. And so how do you, how do you communicate in a way that you're not compromising, but at the same time you're communicating in a way that's really effectively getting across the central points of, in this case, Luther's theology. And right. I think that's a real art to be able to do both at the same time to balance those two things out. And like you and I were talking about earlier today via text is even pastorally, when it comes to Bible study and confirmation in Sunday school, uh, we're constantly reevaluating, reflecting, grinding down how we teach, what we teach and how we present it in a way to make it easier to understand or at least easier to grasp. Did we say that? I like it. I don't remember saying that. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Okay. In the sense (laughs) of, I think we were talking about, well, I was talking about... um, the liturgy Bible study we're doing for Lent, where we're oh, studying right. the historical liturgy, and that's right. Uh, okay. How I finally hit upon we re, when we go through divine service setting three in the LSB, I write on one side of the the whiteboard the word sacrifice, and then I put hour in parentheses, mm-hmm. and then on the other side of the board I put uh, sacrament and in parentheses 
God, and then I write gift, and then I write transaction, sacrifice, transaction, sacrament, mm-hmm. gift. Mm-hmm. And then we just read through the liturgy, and we start with, for example, uh, the um, the invocation, which has for its biblical reference Matthew 28, uh, go into all the world and baptize. And so we start from that Bible verse, and I ask the question, if you understand this sacrificially, transactionally, what does this mean? Versus if you understand this sacramentally in the way of gift, and it's God coming to us, not us making a sacrifice and offering to God, what does that then sound like? How does that influence yeah. our theology of worship, our doctrine of worship? Yeah. And it's... it took me 10 years, and I'm sure there's other people that figured this out as soon as they got out of seminary, but it took me 10 years of just grinding trying to simplify, simplify, simplify what I knew, what I had learned, but in a way that my congregation members could also immediately get a hold of it and understand the difference, the the essential difference in how we understand and approach worship. Yeah. I think, uh, if I remember right, Luther, at the dedication of the castle church at Torgau, uh, has a pretty... Pretty good mm-hmm. excursus on that. That was one of his last things that he did. Was that that was about fifteen forty four, I think. Yeah, it was a phenomenal sermon. Yeah. Um, was that is that in the Lull edition, that anthology, Martin Luther's basic theological writings in Lull? I don't know. It might be. I, I think that's where I read, where I read it originally. Yeah, I used it many, on many many years ago, or maybe it was. It may be in Dillenberger's anthology too. Yeah, I used it for a paper where I was talking about uh, Luther's approach to. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty. Worship. It's a pretty famous sermon. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It's probably in Luther's works actually. Well, it is for sure. Um, But, and then in the same way, when it comes to this matter of, uh, we're teaching the Bible study Mm -hmm. on John, we're in Gospel of John on Tuesday night Bible studies. And same thing, same application, like how can I simplify this down to the the essential parts? And if, as you know about the Gospel of John, he's constantly doubling and drawing out these distinctions, light, dark, truth, lies, uh, God, Satan, and law, gospel, grace, truth, Moses, you know, that kind of stuff. And, but he's, he's doubling back inside of, of sentences, inside of paragraphs, inside of chapters, outside of, he's constantly doubling Mm -hmm. and making references back to stuff he said before. It's amazing. It really is. But if you teach it that way, and I have taught it that way, people get lost. Yeah. Unless you're going to draw out a diagram of the entire gospel of John, so people can kind of follow where he's where he's referring back to and, and you know not get lost within the text versus now what we're doing is we're working in, in terms of scarcity versus abundance mm-hmm. or um, God understood according to law versus God according to gospel hidden God versus revealed God now how do I communicate all of that Lutheran theology to someone without teaching them Luther on the hidden revealed God and how that plays yeah. into everything and then we can do the Bible study yeah. no. Versus, well, what is what is at the base of this? What is really what does this look like in actual practice? And on the one side, then we look at it in terms of scarcity and the language of famine and um, want and worry and burden, and then we look at it from the other side in terms of abundance and the lang- the flood language of the gospel and the language of giftedness, a gift upon gift and abundance. And then just ask when the religious leaders attack Jesus. Or Nicodemus argues with Jesus, or the woman at the well argues with Jesus. Are they arguing out of an understanding of the abundance of God's grace mm-hmm. and favor, or are they arguing out of a place of scarcity? Like the Israelites in the desert during the Exodus. Right. That God gives them gift upon gift upon gift, and yet all they do is complain and complain and complain about how they're going to die at any moment. Mm. 
God operates in the way of the gospel, in the way of abundance and flood and gift upon gift, our default mode of operation, even in relation to God, even when God calls us his people, is to operate in the language of scarcity, famine, want, worry, burden, curse. Yeah. And this lends itself then to a very interesting dynamic, as we were discussing in Bible study last night, of this is the Christian life in a nutshell, that we are given, we are literally translated, as Luther would say, we're translated by the gospel into the kingdom of Christ. And so we are constantly hungering for this language of abundance. And yet our default mode is always to def, you know, to fall backwards into the law, little L law in this case, not big L, God's word of law, but little L law. And then we function with the language of scarcity. Yeah. And we see this then, practically speaking, uh, in our vocations and how, as I was just saying, this time of year when people are sick and they're tired and they just want a break, but they have to work no matter what because they got to pay bills. Their entire mindset, their whole worldview is one of scarcity and famine and, and burden. Mm-hmm. And when you encounter them, it's very easy to get caught up in that and get hooked in by that and play those transactional power games with these people not recognizing that they're sick, they don't want to be at work, they don't have any patience, they're miserable, they hate their job, they just want to be at home, but they can't be, and now they got to deal with your problem. How are they going to, how do you, how do you expect them to react? This is how, or the reason why God gives the commandment uh, for the Sabbath, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, because we, we even treat time that way as if it's a scarce commodity. There's only 24 hours in the day, you don't you know, you know. Right. And, uh, don't you see this whole scarcity famine thing play out really well in John um, after the feeding of 5,000, right? John says. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how, how they're all hung up about, about earthly bread, you know, mm-hmm. and they want to make mm-hmm. him king because, you know, because look at this. I mean, this is impressive. He'll fill right. our bellies. And like, you think you would remember your history, you know? God did this right. for 40 years in the wilderness for your forefathers. And it didn't really make that much of a difference. <laughs> No, no, it doesn't. No. And that's that, that unfortunately it, it's it's kind of like Highlander theology. There can only be one. <laughs> there can only be one. And that's what happens when you function when you work out of an attitude of scarcity, when you function out of a theology of scarcity, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, not only is it well the Western church is the true church, but the Eastern Church is heterodox or, or not orthodox. Mm-hmm. But then we narrow it down to a particular part of the church, a particular sect within the Western church, and then a sect within a sect, all the way down to the congregational level. And then eventually it just becomes you or your family that are the true Christians. And it's this, it is, it's this kind of Highlander theology of there can only be one who is Orthodox and it's got to be me. And that's the lonely way. (laughs) It is truly the lonely way of the little L law of thinking that that the way in which we apply the law to ourselves is somehow applicable or or running parallel to God's word of law. Yeah. And I think this is this is an, a jumping off point too to talk about just real briefly that the old Adam hates God's law, but the old Adam loves his own law. Yeah. And so what we try to do is we superimpose our little L law over God's big L word of law. And I think more often than not pastorally speaking when I hear confessions what I hear is People tend to hate God's law, practically speaking, because, or they they look at God as being very cruel and um, devious and untrustworthy, not because they hate his word of law, but simply because they've superimposed their little L law over God's word of law. And since it's so finite, 
so limited and mm. unable to affect any kind of actual change in their life or the life of the people around them that they uh, they do they they go deeper and deeper into this this attitude of scarcity and famine and yeah. burden and then they put the burden on god yeah this is and what jesus calls the uh, leaven of the pharisees and scribes right exactly yeah, leavens, yeah. it 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 undermines the entirety of of the christian message if it's right. if it's all about our our little laws and obedience right. and, and whatnot. Well, and that's a great point because that really is the distinction. When they accuse Jesus of, of working on the Sabbath, he healed that blind man on this or that paralyzed man on the Sabbath. Yeah. Remember they stopped the man who's walking down the road with his mat and go, why are, you know, they ask him, why are you walking around with a mat? It's the Sabbath. And he said, well, I don't know about that. I just know that dude healed me and told me to get up and go home and take my mat with me. And so the first question isn't how, how did this, this miracle happen, but rather what's his name? Where's he at? We mm-hmm. want to talk to him. And then later when he sees Jesus in the temple, he goes up to Jesus and says, yeah, hey, thanks, incredible. you know, and, yeah. and then goes and tells the Pharisees, oh, it's that guy over there, his name is Jesus. And the debate isn't between the one who gives the law mm-hmm. and those who are using it incorrectly, but rather it's the author of the big L law versus the those who are trying to superimpose their little L law over the top of it. Right. And claiming ultimate authority. Yeah. And that's why they accuse him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God and calling God Father. Yeah, always got to make it easier. But you know, yeah, doable. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's why the the then you end up looking like the Kurgan. <laughs> there you go. I uh, I, watched a, I watched a retrospective review on Highlander yesterday. It's fresh in my mind. Duncan McLeod. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Connor McLeod's the movie. Duncan McLeod's the TV series. Oh, that's right. Oh yeah. man, I got all confused. I was Adrian say, Paul, I think, was the actor who played uh, yeah. Duncan in the series. The series was actually pretty good after the third, second season, once they kind of found their voice. Hmm. It just completely the, destroyed the canon of the original movie, but Highlander 2 and 3 did that too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The movies are totally uneven. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. And I guess there was a cartoon. There was a Highlander cartoon. Really? Yeah, there was a Saturday morning cartoon. Didn't last very long. No. Uh, it, was, like, it was horrible. I think he had a lightsaber. Sounds like He-Man, but less interesting. Well, like Thundar, it was like Thundar, or the Barbarian. Remember Thundar the Barbarian from Saturday mornings? It was yeah, Thundar, um, uh, and then the princess was with him. Princess, was it Ariel? And then Ukla the Mock. How, how do I know I these things? How do know. I remember these things? Totally. In my mind. I can recall these things from my childhood at, at will. Mm. But yet I look at people that I train with every day and go, Hey, Shooter, how you doing? <laughs> We'll just say it's your brilliance. No, it's not. It's just a whole lot of short. <laughs> it's a whole lot of shorted out connections. <laughs> That's right. But uh, no, it is an interesting thing when we function out of this position of scarcity because we were discussing it in relation to to the Midwestern ethic that is a part of at least the Lutheran Church and and it's a part of other Midwestern congregations too is the this Midwestern ethic that's historical for sure uh, and it comes I think out of the Depression generation it's the feast or famine ethic is that when you have abundance you have to devour it and enjoy it because it won't last long and yeah. then you're and so you're always worried about losing what you have hmm. and this ethic of scarcity has then influenced the church in such a way that we can never spend money to improve or update the church or the parsonage. We can never um, 
spend un, quote unquote unnecessarily because yeah. you never know when it's going to rain in the you sense don't. of a disaster. You don't. And there, that is entirely born out of this, this, this theology of scarcity mm-hmm. versus well, there's, a theology of abundance, which is that God will always continue to gift us. Uh, it may not be in the way that we function. It may not be a monetary material uh, gifting, but mm-hmm. yet there will always be a church. There will always be a preacher. There will always be the, the sacrament. Uh, it just depends on where the Lord chooses to set up shop. So what did Jesus say? Whoever desires to uh, save his life must lose it or something like exactly. that? Exactly. Which uh-huh. is so hard when you've institutionalized this this attitude, this ethic, this theology of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Because it's then it's all about self-preservation. Yep. We have to pres- The example I use too is when you function out of this theology of scarcity, you could load a table down with food to the point where the table breaks under the weight of the food. And you'll still complain that tomorrow you might starve to death. So you can't even spare a scrap for anybody else. Right. But functioning out of the theology of abundance, God could put a peanut on the table. And you would snatch it off the table and say, that's too much. You're going to break the table. That's more than enough. And I'm going to eat this today because I know tomorrow you'll put more food on the table. Mm-hmm. Which is, the uh, again, the, the theology of the Exodus, obviously. Um, but uh, Luther talks about this. I think it's in Psalm... 38 or 8, I can't remember off the top of my head. I wrote, a, wrote something about it yesterday, but uh, where Dr. Luther says that, um, or no, 3717, Psalm 3717, I think it is, that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I think it's 3717, that essentially out of that psalm, he says, not only is Jesus our food and our sustenance, but he is our home and our property. Hmm. that wherever Jesus is at, that's where the kingdom of heaven is at, that's where heaven is at. And since he gives himself to us, um, wherever we are at in relation to Jesus, where he gives himself to us as gift, that is our home, and that is our property, and that is our food, that is everything. Yeah. And that even if we die, he says, the language of abundance, the language of the gospel is such that we can say, even though I die, I live. Yeah. As you just pointed out, even though that we don't gain our life unless we lose it. Well, and that's uh, the example of the widow's mite, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, out of out of her lack, she gives abundantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not the sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, but it's actually, you know, the confession of faith you know, right. that she's making, that, she, well, that God will take care of her. And I think uh, we talked about this off air. This is something that I'm developing now because I'm going to be preaching through the commandments uh, from the large catechism for Lent. That's our Lenten series this year is the Ten Commandments. And this is what I'm going to hit on with the commandments is the distinction between reading the commandments in relation to scarcity versus reading the commandments in relation to abundance. Mm -hmm. And that the old Adam reads the commandments in terms of scarcity, famine, want, worry, and that stuff. Whereas the Christian, the new man in Christ, reads the commandments in relation to Christ in relation to the language of the flood and abundance and gift upon gift. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the commandments are all gift in Christ. And outside of Christ, they are a burden. Right. And how do you communicate this to people who may not ever have been taught it? And without compromising the gospel to make political points or to make, you know, push your agenda in the sermon from the pulpit, mm. which I think is completely dishonest mm. for a pastor to do unethical and irresponsible. And for me, it's it's simplifying it down to how do I explain the simile? How do I preach the simile uh, in a way that I never have to define and explain the simile to them or that they have to attend a, a class on the simile in order to properly understand my sermons. Right. 
and at least in this context, in preaching the commandments, talking about the Gospel of John, what seems to really have traction with with my people is this distinction between the language of scarcity and the language of abundance. Yeah, it's another way to describe Luther's own explanations to the exactly. commandments, right? In fact, uh, this, well, when, when we're recording this, this Sunday is the man born blind that Jesus heals mm-hmm. and that he cries out, Lord, son of David, have, or son of David, Lord, have mercy. And pointing out that he is in hope, he is operating out of a theology of abundance. And yet the crowd is saying, shut up. <laughs> quiet you, that the crowd is operating out of out of a theology of scarcity. Mm. And if you look at the Gospels, the disciples are constantly operating out of this, this ethic, this theology of scarcity, because they're constantly scolding the children, get away, Jesus is too busy for you people. Or, mm-hmm. hey, Lord, those people are exercising demons in your name, but they're not with us, so if you could go over there and tell them to shut that down, that would be really great. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, or they argue with each other about who's going to be seated with Jesus on the right and left-hand side. It's all the lang- It's all the, this. It's all the theology of scarcity. That's true. Because it's all arguing out of what little I do have, I can't afford to give away or lose. <sighs> and how this affects the church practically, like I said, is it it determines how we establish budgets. It determines how we vote in relation to matters of worship, matters of polity, Hmm. um, ministry, outreach. It it really encompasses the entirety of the Christian faith. Well, scarcity is fear-driven, right? Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Fear, insecurity. This is why all institutions that want to control and manipulate a group of people will do so through the mechanisms of fear and insecurity. Mm -hmm. For example, Mexicans are going to invade our borders, cross over, and take jobs away from us. But, but we never complain about already. the illegal Swedish oh, neurosurgeon right. who comes over here and steals that job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's always, uh, well, they're going to come over here and pick fruit and take away American jobs mm. or mow our lawns or trim our hedges. Mm. And as one comedian said, if, uh, if an uneducated person who can't speak English can take your job, maybe you should step back and take a good look at yourself rather than complain about them taking your job. Yeah. Put yourself to better use there. Yeah. And as he said, you know, no, two neurosurgeons aren't sitting around at a bar getting drunk. Because, and one guy says the other one's, I can't believe that Swedish, that Swedish guy came over here and stole my job. It's like, no, you're a neurosurgeon. Your, your job's pretty secure. You're pretty good at your job. Hmm. And if you're good at your job, you're not going to lose your job. But in order to push my political agenda, and this is the funny thing, and I bring this up because having lived in Mexico and going back to Mexico every year, for those of you who don't know, Mexicans don't want to come to the United States. Mm-mm. It's not like it's their first choice. They just want U.S. dollars. That's it. They want, well, yeah, exactly. They want money to actually support themselves because in Mexico, the peso isn't worth squat. Right. But the cost and, of living is lower, too. Right. It, it is to a certain extent, but just the basic amenities are going to eat up your entire paycheck. Yeah, okay. Just surviving right. is, is your paycheck. And versus if you come here and work and then send money back home, right? Um, it may not, you're not going to be able to get a better house or buy a new car or anything like that, but you're also not going to be worrying about starving to death. Yep. And I, I have a friend who he's a, he's an oncologist in, well, he was an oncologist in Mexico and now he picks fruit uh, because couldn't get a job and uh, need to support his family. So he came up here on a work visa and he picks fruit. That's what he does. And now he's being naturalized. He's running a nursery. Um, And the reason he can't be a doctor here is because he would have to be licensed in the United States. And there's a big um, quote-unquote fee, they call it, for uh, white-collar 
uh, professional to immigrate to the United States. Oh. Yeah. That's so, why our friend Henning never came, because they were going to so, charge him hundreds of thousands of dollars to move here. Above because and beyond of, just basic immigration costs. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's considered a professional worker. And then according to some provision in the Patriot Act, if you're a professional worker, uh, you have to pay a fee to immigrate. Mm, well, you can monetize pretty much anything, right? It's kind of like a, it's a, it's a retroactive tax. Right, exactly. It's a retroactive tax. You want in the country, pay pay the toll. And if you're a white collar professional, you have more money to pay, or you have more money that you can pay, and so we're going to tax right. you harder. Right. Okay. That's the difference. Um, again, scarcity, functioning out of the the ethic of scarcity, the attitude of scarcity. Um, but yeah, what are you going to do? You know, just be just be aware that it's not. We, it's not one or the other, but rather the Christian life is that God sends us a preacher to preach the gospel to us, to, to translate us into this this language, this theology of abundance. Yeah. And our default mode is to always backslide into scarcity and to wrestle with it. And mm-hmm. I think we're going to get into this today, uh, if I remember, uh, because of Luther's doctrine of creation and how we, as old Adam and Eve, see creation— and how God translates us through the gospel to see creation and how that's always at odds. Yeah. Well, maybe we should dig in. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's a little early yet, but that's okay. That's okay. It's 29 minutes in. We covered a whole bunch of stuff. Illegal immigration, legal immigration, Patriot Act, language of scarcity, budgets, Mm. all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. Highlander. Highlander. (laughs) There can be only one. There can be only one. Thunder the Barbarian. Uh, so we are going to be on page 118 and 119 of Kolb and Aaron's book, The Genius of Luther's Theology. And this is the section with this, that has got the subheading, Faith Let's God Do the God Stuff. There you go. So we'll dive in. As Christians live in a fallen creation in which the moral order underlying society may be on the verge of collapse, faith frees them from the need to play God and thereby recreate the world or usher in a utopian society. This is very much a German tradition when the first sentence is four sentences or four, pay, or four lines long. Mm-hmm. Brevity. Brevity, friends. Brevity is the soul of wit. As Christians live in a fallen creation in which the moral order underlying society may be on the verge of collapse or has already collapsed yeah. <laughs> for the most part, uh, this was published in 2008. Mm. Within uh, 10 years, mm-hmm. 10 years, this much has changed. Yeah. There's well, there not, is like no moral underpinning. It's it's really hard to argue for any kind of morality or at least objective morality. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there is a morality, but it's kind of a, it's a, it's always shifting. Well, so, it's a shame based morality. Uh huh. So what is it? It is a morality today? of scarcity to revisit yep. that, but it is, too, a, it is a shame-based or... morality. It's, you look at the Me Too movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's entirely shame-based. It's not based on any kind of due process or rule of law or any attempt to push for legislation that introduces justice into the legal system <clears throat> for those who have been sexually assaulted, molested, right. raped, and so forth. And when you feel you're in a position that you have no legal recourse or no recourse to justice... What are you left with other than to publicly shame someone mm-hmm. and to say, well, if you're not going to be prosecuted under the law, we'll prosecute you in the court of public opinion on social media. <clears throat> we'll attempt to get you fired from your job. We'll destroy your reputation, so forth and so on. And I can't say that I don't sympathize. However, 
I'm very much sympathize, especially with those who have a legitimate claim of being assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is as more and more people come forward and more and more people add their voice to this group, it almost becomes white noise at a certain point. Yeah. Because it's everybody is pointing a finger in a direction and saying, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. And everybody is applying the yes or no of their moral compass in a way that if you are a serial rapist or you simply uh, you know, slap somebody on their butt inappropriately, it's all lumped into one big group in one big ball mm-hmm. and you're all shamed equally. You've lost your job. Right. There's um, no... Um, or your company. Right. You lose your job, you lose your company, you lose your family, whatever it may be. There's no distinctions. There's no nuance. It's just a club. Yeah. I've been listening to a podcast that was started by some female baristas, these coffee Mm. people, and they're talking about uh, a coffee shop out west, Four Barrel uh, was Mm. its name. It was actually um, male, female owned. So there were two owners Mm -hmm. or three owners, I think, total, two male and one one female. Um, But... Apparently, there was some systematic, um, maybe not straight out assault, but certainly, um, mm-hmm. what do we call it? Uh, abuse of some sort, verbal yeah. or, yeah, maybe some physical too. And um, so, yeah, these women are banding together and it's been decades. And you're like, well, so what's changed? And, uh, but it turns out uh, basically the person is going to, has to divest the entire company to the employees. That's wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the settlement. And mm-hmm. so, you, I mean, you lose your livelihood, you lose what you've mm-hmm. worked a long time for. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, or a listener correct me if I'm wrong, but assault, legally speaking, is a threat. Mm. Oh, uh, battery is when I act on that threat. Mm, I don't know. So, that if I right, say, though. if you don't stop, I'm going to kick your butt, that's assault. If I actually physically kick your butt, that's battery. Hmm. And so, a sexual assault is. I threaten to do something to you or I say something to you that makes you feel uh, afraid for your safety, yeah. for your physical safety. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if I act on it, now it's not sexual assault anymore, but rather it is uh, sexual battery, rape, molestation. I mm. think that's the distinction, legally speaking. Well, in um, any case, there, I mean, there does need to be a corrective. Uh, clearly, clearly, there are systematic oh, abuses happening. Well, Go back and watch a go back and watch a movie from the 1950s and mm-hmm. early 1960s. If there's a man and a woman on screen, there are several things that happen. Yeah, uh, they slap women. Awkward. They will slap a woman. They will bend her over their leg and spank her. Yep. They will just grab her and force her to kiss them. <laughs> it's it's remarkable if you take that uh, those scenes in in various movies from the 50s and 60s as a kind of snapshot of the culture at that time and cultural attitudes toward women and then jump forward to the present tense and ask as a snapshot in 2018, what's the distinction between then and now as far as cultural attitudes toward women and how men behave toward women, how men speak to women and so forth and so on. And I think that's a part of the, the fervor is this has been such a, a whiplash cultural Mm. event Mm -hmm. because it's been building and building and building and then it finally exploded and social media is largely i think to uh take credit for that because people are able to communicate instantaneously with each other now and realize oh i'm not alone right 
I'm, this isn't, I'm not an anachronism here. I'm not an outlier. I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I'm not abnormal, but rather this has been happening to a whole bunch of other people for a long time. And what can we do to stop this? Well, we can, we can expose it. We can shine a light on it and go, yeah, this is unacceptable. You can't do this. This is completely right. unacceptable. Right. Um, but circling back around then, if there's no objective moral truth or objective moral measure that underpins this type of conversation, it can go, it just goes from ditch to ditch. It goes back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a vain attempt to do what, what, uh, our authors are talking about is to bring in some kind of utopia. Right. Well, and I was listening to a, a, a dialogue between two people uh, this morning when I was driving the kids to school uh, that, that I think is very helpful in the sense that it was Nietzsche with the, you know, label with the death of God, mm. where, where Nietzsche talks about self-creation essentially that with, by eliminating God, what it does is it opens up the possibility for creatures to create their own meaning and to create themselves because it's no longer we are creatures of a god who created us to discover the meaning of life the universe and everything and that we don't go into the woods to discover creation but rather we go into the woods to create Mm -hmm. ourselves to create nature in our own image and so when we rebel against any old system uh, any system of, for in this case, morality, that there is no ultimate morality, uh, no ultimate God-given uh, law mm-hmm. or system of law or, or moral law, what ends up happening is we end up essentially uh, trying to divine the future from our own entrails kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Belly button theology, or you cut up in a goat and go, what's the future hold? Let's look at his intestines. Yeah, something um, has to take its place, right? Right. And so Nietzsche said that we can be, we can mold ourselves into whatever we imagine, whatever we want. We are, we are self-creating beings and the purpose of life is to create meaning for ourselves. And then it was Carl Jung who later came back around and said, no, 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 no. We were all created for a purpose. Yeah. And we are not created to self-create. We are not created to establish our own moral systems uh, because Jung recognized what that, the consequence of that would be, which would be mm-hmm. chaos, anarchy. Yeah. yeah. But rather we're already molded when we come out of the womb. We're already molded into what God intends for us to be. Mm. And that really this is the present argument is this old argument between Nietzsche and then much later in the 20th century, Carl Jung, of whether or not we are self-creating creatures who create our own reality, create our own moral morality and ethics, or whether we were created for a purpose. Mm. And the meaning of life is to discover, um, to learn, to engage. So, for example, when it comes to polytheism, when you have many gods, the 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 creature in relation to the gods is simply there to be a a, a plaything essentially for the whim of the gods and that the gods are these forces and they're impersonal versus the god of israel this monotheistic god or this monotheistic religion where we are created to be in relation to god and for God to speak to us and to present himself to us in such a way that we can't understand within a certain limita- certain set of limitations who God is for us. That is a personal relationship with God. Yeah. And it's based on a knowing in the sense of an intimate relationship. We're, you know, polytheists, it's impersonal and we are subject to the whim of the gods. 
For the monotheist, we are created to be in relation to God and that we come out in such a way that God says, no, I've created everything. I've set everything in motion. I'm still governing all things. I still have authority over all things. I've established a certain order to things. And you just get to kind of walk around and discover what I've done. Yeah, and you don't it's, do it alone. I think that's the other aspect exactly, of it, right? Exactly. Is that it's not right. it's not the self self-chosen reality or self-created kind of prophecy, self-fulfillment. Well, that um, would be what we talked about in the last episode about the distinction between perception and reality. Right, exactly. I mean, self-chosen, self-created reality would be a perception of reality, not maybe actual reality. You know, it's always going to happen in community. Um, whether it's yeah. a family or church or or, mm-hmm. or a network of, you know, or just literally your neighbors, um, that's where you're going to, or that's how you're going to discover um, what, you know, what particularity God has given you in, in your well, place. And we were talking about this uh, the other day, too, that once you've eliminated God, this mm-hmm. is the first move of the old Adam. This is the first move that we make is we need to eliminate God. We need to eliminate this talk of purpose and objective reality, objective truth, and so forth. We need to obje- get rid of that first. And once we've gotten God out of the way, mm-hmm. now we can be about the business of creating our own reality, creating our own truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a TV show called The Shannara Chronicles based on the Terry Brooks books. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the second season just came out, and my, my kids love it. I love the I read the books when I was in junior high. I love Terry Brooks, yeah. uh, at least the Shannara Chronicles. And what really irritates me about the second season of the show is this constant refrain of your truth. You have to discover your truth. What is your truth? Mm-hmm. And I was explaining, it's an educational moment for us. I was explaining to the kids uh, what the problem is with that statement, that you have to discover your truth is that it's okay to go and discover your truth so long as it doesn't clash or collide with my truth. Right. <laughs> the the unfortunately, unfortunate consequence of living with other people, though, is eventually it will clash with other people's truth. And therefore, it may sound good on the surface, uh, but it's under the surface, it is violent mm. and brings us into conflict. And this is my point then, is that once we've eliminated God so that we can be self-created, we can self-create, then what ends up happening is because we're not God. We're like God, knowing good and evil, but we're not God. And so even though we can recognize the distinction, the difference between what is good and what is wrong, evil or wrong, mm-hmm. we have no power to change right. good and evil. We have no power to rescue ourselves from evil or make ourselves good. Yeah, uh, Experience plays that out regardless of how much we argue about it. <laughs> and if, But once you've eliminated God because you hate God... What ends up happening, and this is why I bring this up in the present tense, is you end up hating being. Mm. You hate humanity because what is it that limits you? What is it that hedges you? What is it that puts boundaries around you? It's the fact that you're just an average, ordinary person. Yeah. And, and, and whether you, if you acknowledge the existence of God, um, then you're, you hate being a creature of a creator. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And this is what you see with the social justice warrior movement, the equality of outcome argument, uh, this neo-Marxist postmodern move is they've gotten rid of God. They've set themselves up to be creators in God's place. But now they've reached this tipping point where (laughs) people aren't doing what they want. And so they either have to legislate morality Mm -hmm. in the direction that they want it to go, or they have to shame you destroy you, silence you, shut you down, or uh, they have to separate themselves and isolate themselves from other people 
Because as you pointed out, that's where meaning is happening constantly. There's meaning happening in community and groups all the time. Right. This is this is why we seek out other groups. This is why tribalism is is to this day still popular even in the first world. But we're caught in the present tense in this back and forth between wanting to be our own creators and believing that there is a creator. Mm. And wanting to be, a, you know, participate in the public dialogue, participate in what's happening in our culture, and yet at the same time saying, uh, I don't think you're very logical at all. <laughs> I don't think you've thought this through well enough. Yeah. Well, you see this play out in decision making, uh, you know, in our own lives or congregation, mm-hmm. where uh, I heard it said this way, that if uh, for this to be God's to be in, in line with what God would have us do, you know, we have to take our time, we have to be patient, and we have to let everybody speak. Like, yeah, why would you presume that that's the only way that God would work, you know, or that God's will would be done? And this is the thing is that gender politics comes out of Marxism Mm -hmm. and the Marxist ideology because gender politics, the way it's argued by the other side, by, by the social justice warrior side is gender is a social construct and it's a part of a system of oppression and it's a hierarchical system and who's at the top of the system, white European men. And who's at the bottom? Well, anybody who's not a white European man. And women are caught somewhere in the middle in that tension. And the only way to escape from this oppressive system that is dominated by white male privilege is to destroy the system. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start playing gender politics, you're a Marxist. You might be an anti-Marxist, but once you enter into that debate and you try and, and argue for a positive gender politic, it's still within that Marxist system, that Marxist ideology. So you have to be super careful that even as a Christian, when you start arguing about orders of creation, for example, you don't fall into a post-Marxist system uh, of categorizing gender and sex and um, uh, sexual preferences and all of these different things. So in one sense, this like utopian ideal, neo-Marxist kind of approach to things is, is a repeat of history. Right. In oh, one course. sense, we, yeah. we've been through this before. It's happened mm-hmm. in Europe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In Europe multiple times, mm-hmm. um, you know, or in, or in the East as well. And uh, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem to be like a cycle of violence, like like we go through it and then we kind of get over it. And um, it does seem to be, it does seem to be progressive. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. That it's getting amplified uh, with each regeneration of this mm-hmm. idea. Well, you're constantly tweaking it. You're, mm-hmm. you're learning from the failures of the previous generation. Yeah. And then it, it's, it's like third wave feminism. They mm-hmm. learned from the second and the first wave, and then they, they updated and tweaked it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, just, you can't go out, you can't outright just starve potato farmers like, like you might have in the past, right? Right, exactly. You have, to, you have to be much more subversive about how you do it. You have to nuance it a little bit. Right. It's like you can't just practice outright slavery. So how do you enslave people without allowing them to to recognize that they're slaves that kind of stuff well you put them in a constant fear that they're going to um, get accused of uh, being a sexual predator or something right exactly you know as a white anglo male european male (laughs) well i was talking with a college student who who made the quip kind of sardonically that uh he was going to have to start carrying around um a waiver if he wanted to go out on a date with anybody Mm. And have the and have the girl sign the waiver before they go out on the date, <laughs> because he's afraid of what will happen if he says or does the wrong thing. Yeah, it's like a safe word, but even more. 
Which I, I sent you the the podcast. As one comedian said, this is like a new Puritanism. Mm-hmm. As as progressive and liberal as it claims to be, this movement is actually extremely puritanical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because essentially, what you're doing in in digital form is making people wear a red A on their chest. Mm-hmm. That's right. And which is really wild because I I wonder if this is the consequence of helicopter parenting. Oh, I guess I had not made that connection. Is that the 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 whole world is dangerous. The whole world can kill you. Everything is is a predator, and everything is a potential uh, harmful event. And we have to nerf the world. And mm. anything that is painful, anything that hurts, anything that causes struggle or suffering is evil, is bad. And again, it's not to discount the reality and the truth of the horror of being sexually abused or sexually assaulted. But on the flip side, people jump on that bandwagon because they're looking for something to be outraged by. Mm. It's a culture of outrage online, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every, there are people, you go on Twitter, there are people who wake up every day and go on Twitter just so they can be outraged. Mm. And they go find some cause to be outraged about and they just start slinging. That's got to be so and, fatiguing. What's that? That's got to be fatiguing, you know? You, well, I, I think the, the energy comes from the feedback you get. When yeah. someone retweets it and you see all the retweets or you, oh, this person who I really respect or this famous person retweeted my tweet. Yeah. And but, that carries that through. But there's a hopelessness to it, you know. You you have a hope, but, but it's a vain hope. I mean, it's unattainable because, it, well, again, it's I utopian. Well, I wonder about that, though, since you brought it up, is I wonder if there is any hope because it seems that just being outraged is the telos mm-hmm. of the whole movement. Yeah. Because there is no push for legislation. There is no push to sit down at a table and dialogue and seek to understand each other. It's simply, let's shame this person until they deactivate or or delete their account and we never have to hear from them again. Yeah, it's this need for constant progress without any contentment or at least least willingness to to suffer whatever the current culture is or morality. It's like like a social media Darwinism. We've gone Mm -hmm. from social Darwinism to social media Darwinism. And what I mean by that is that Darwin really popularized the myth of progress mm-hmm. because that's what evolution is. Evolutionary theory is the myth that we're getting better and better day by day, generation after generation. That we move evolution. from chaos to yes, perfection. Yes, to order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the myth of progress, which is really the American democratic idea, the American dream is the myth of progress, is that we're always moving from vice to virtue, from bad to good to better to best. And as a society, we're becoming scarcity to yes, we're becoming more enlightened. Uh, This myth comes into the church in the sense of we've become more sanctified, more holy as we live more holy lives. Uh, It's a very popular ideology, the myth of progress, social Mm -hmm. progress in particular. Yeah. And if you stand in the way of that progress, whether you're a conservative Christian in in this instance, or you're just simply raising the question, I, I don't think you've thought through your presuppositions. I don't think you're being logical at all then you're standing in the way of progress too, because this isn't a logical argument. (laughs) It's an ideological argument. And it falls apart under its own weight if you keep picking at it, because history has proven what happens when you adopt Marxist ideas. And uh, they always end violently. Yep, it doesn't go well. Like the last podcast, I used the example of the gleaners in Russia or the Venezuelan hospital. If you want to understand how Marxism actually plays out, go to Venezuela. You know, that's what I say to everybody who says, I really like what's happening. Well, if you want to see where this is going, go to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. 
go see how this works in Venezuela. Go to Sweden and see what happens in Sweden with these in these Islamic communities or in France right now or in Germany right now. Mm-hmm. See what happens when you adopt this social justice uh, ideology writ large. Uh, it, it welcomes in violence. It, it breeds violence because not only is it not enough that you are considered progressive, you have to be more progressive than the next person. That's right. And it is a never ending cycle. And that's why it becomes violent because you're constantly climbing over the person in front of you to prove you're more progressive, more liberal, more enlightened, more tolerant, more understanding. You're just more. And that's that myth of progress. So does it begin with violence towards God and then, then violence towards neighbor? Yes, 100%. We say it yeah, that love way. God, love yep. your neighbor, hate God. As a consequence, you hate your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back, actually, we should probably go back to the text now. That was one sentence we just got off. and that Four was lines, though. Sentence. Four lines. Four lines, one sentence. So if Christians live in a fallen creation in which the moral order underlying society may be on the verge of collapse, as we just discussed. Uh, in fact, I would argue that the moral order collapses when something like Marxism is adopted writ large. Mm-hmm. Because as I pointed out, within this Nietzschean system or this Marxist system, we are self-creating. And, you know, in the Nietzschean, in the Nietzschean way of thinking, we are self-creating because there is no God. In the Marxist system, we need to tear down the old order and build a new order. We need to tear down the old oppressive system and rebuild a better system that's more open, more tolerant, more welcoming, more progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a consequence, what is morality within that system? Well, it is whatever direction the wind is blowing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, we would call it popular opinion, the opinion legis, so to speak. Yeah, there you go. So faith frees them from the need to play God and thereby recreate the world or usher in a utopian society. So if you want to understand, I think, anyways, this is my opinion, but I think the reason that you see what's happening in, in our society today with the push and pull of the alt-right, the extreme edge of the alt-right and the extreme edge of the progressive movement, this is what they're trying to do is recreate the world or usher in their version of a utopian society. Yeah, and to apply it to the church, it also happens there. Um, you know, try Oh, to, very much so. Yeah, try to create our own vision of what we think the church should be. Um, right. There's a question about uh, call process that was posed to me as a vacancy pastor. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the official documentation that come out of our church body say, you know, they want you to self, kind of self-identify. What what are the things that are important to you? And there's a way you could mm-hmm. probably do that in faith. Um, yeah. But the way I looked at it, it was more it was more just like how can we recreate this congregation with whatever image we want while right. we don't have a pastor, and then we find a right. pastor that conforms to that image. Well, I'll use an extreme example uh, to draw out your point. And you Mm -hmm. might have to look this up for me because I can't remember the exact name. But in Virginia, it was the first court case for interracial marriage where a black man married a white woman. And actually it might be Love versus the state of Virginia. Um, I can't remember his last name. But anyways, at that case, when the judge ruled against them, he said, as a Christian, God did not create... uh, blacks and whites to intermarry or Chinese or any other color. Whites marry whites, blacks marry blacks. That's why God made white people and they live in Europe and God made black people and they live in Africa. We were not meant to interact with each other. That's not the way God made it. And it's all proven by the Bible. Loving versus Virginia. Now, loving, thank you. Yeah, loving versus Virginia. What year was that? 1967. So in 1967, wow, I thought it was 57. In 1967, 
a judge claimed as as a Christian and through the authority of the Bible that black people and white people were never intended by God to be married. And thus, that's why he ruled against this marriage. It, you could never get away with saying that today. Mm -mm. But to your point, church is, the as Martin Luther King Jr. said in the 60s, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, at least in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. If you if you go to a church on Sunday, it's going to be white, it's going to be black, it's going to be brown, it's going to be whatever. But very rarely, unless you live in uh, an urban area, right. like Chicago, like right. Los Angeles, like New York, you're not going to see an integrated church. You're mm -hmm. just not. No, it's, you'll it's, actually see two different churches even that meet in the same building. Yes, very much so. Right, so you have the Spanish service in the afternoon and English in the morning or something like that. That's right. I helped the congregation with that where the 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 community began as a suburb, a white suburb, and then in the 2000 morphed into a Mexican um, community and it grew around the church as happens. And the church was right across the street from the school. The church was dying. The school had no students. It was broke. It was going bankrupt. They were going to have to close. And the pastor simply walked across the street one day and started talking to the school nurse, actually, and asked if there's anything the church could do to help with after-school programs. And he was told a lot of the students that stayed after school, they didn't have any food. Uh, they couldn't afford to buy lunch. And they usually only ate once a day and, and blah, blah, blah. And so the church started serving after-school snacks. And then they opened up their field outside to soccer. And all of a sudden, little Mexican kids started showing up for Sunday school. Hmm. And by the end of the year, they had enough Mexicans to create to basically create a second church. And that's what they ended up doing because the congregation that was there did not want to integrate. Right. And this was five years ago. Hmm. Not 1967 and, and, or 57. And I'm not going to go through the arguments because they were racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were just flat out racist arguments. Mm -hmm. But the people that were making those arguments didn't believe they were being racist. Yeah, you might make a liturgical argument. Oh, well, they sing different music or Spanish It was a logistical argument more than anything. Yeah, that yeah, we don't, yeah. Are, it, it, Do we have to have a bilingual service, for example? Mm -hmm. Right. And it took... Uh, it took a couple of years for them to integrate. So they had two separate church councils, two separate Sunday schools, two separate worship services. Everything was separate. And it was actually through the kids that the, the church integrated because, of course, the kids don't care. No, they'll sing color, each other's musics. and right, yeah. They don't care what color the skin color of the kid playing next to them is. They just care that they're playing. You might actually think it's cool to pray in Spanish. 100%. My kids mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And uh, then through the parents interacting in the Sunday school and in the after school programs, that's how the church integrated eventually. Mm. Um, but it was a hard go for sure. Yeah. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't explicit racism. It was cultural racism. It was just, this is the way we've always done it. This is who we are. And we're not going to change for quote unquote, those people. Mm. And eventually your kids grow up with those people and they just become my friends. Yeah. <laughs> and then it integrates. Yeah. And, so yeah, this is this is the thing is that we we all have we all without exception, and that was an ex I use that as an extreme example of course because it is an extreme example, um, and therefore it makes it a little bit easier to to understand the argument. But we all have a utopian view, a Platonic view of the perfect liturgy, the perfect church, the perfect church body, the perfect wife, the perfect husband, the perfect neighbor, the perfect coworker, whatever it might be. We all have mm -hmm. some ut utopian dream. We just all do. Yeah. It's just a question of whether you recognize it as a dream and abandon it 
or whether you try and make it reality. I just thought about this. If you if you want to understand what the breakdown looks like societally, read um, Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, Demons. Mm. Um, because the book Demons, it's considered the... It was written in 1871, 1872, and it's classified as one of his four great masterpieces. It's it's his post-Gulag uh, works. So after he got out of the Gulag, he wrote The Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, and Demons. And okay. Demons is about the breakdown of the oh, Christian church. Oh, it's also church. called The Possessed. That's why I was thinking. That's why I yeah, it's remember. called The Possessed, right. It, it was Yeah, it has two titles. And in Demons... It's about the, the the breakdown and destruction of the Christian church in Russia and the rise of this Marxist ideology. And it's Dostoevsky assessing what's going to happen as the church continues to lose its foothold in the public square. Right. And with the rise of Marxism as an atheistic ideology, it, of course, wants to eliminate Christianity. And so if you want to read how this works, read Demons. And then as a as a sequel to Demons, to see how that Marxist system perpetuates itself, read the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. Because he's writing that after this is all settled and become an institution. We're really, but, we're, we're digging deep here. Yeah, right. And so uh, Dostoevsky is a much shorter book, <laughs> and it's a work of fiction. It's easier to read. Dostoevsky's The Gulag Archipelago is, yeah, it's close to, a, it's got to be over a thousand pages or at least close to a thousand pages. I think the volume that I read was over 800 pages. It's thick. Um, and don't read it in the wintertime. I beg you, don't not read it in the wintertime, <laughs> at least if you live in the Midwest, because it is super depressing. You're going to a hole and never come out again. Uh, that's what happened to me. I read it about this time, actually, when mm-hmm. I first read it back when I was like 22, 23 years old. I read it in the dead of winter. Uh, couldn't go out, was sick, just bought it at a used bookstore, opened it up, started reading it. Couldn't put it down, but by the time I got done reading it, I thought I was going to have to go into therapy. <laughs> It's like, we're all doomed. Everything is great. Nothing matters. It's all hopeless. All right. So we had, we had, uh, Fedor's Demons. What was the other one that we were just talking about? The Gulag Archipelago. Oh, Gulag Archipelago. Which Solzhenitsyn is, is, he's writing about his time in the Gulag. Oh yeah, Solzhenitsyn. And the only reason he was arrested and sent to the Gulag was for speaking. Hmm. He's a, he's an intellectual. He wasn't a, you know, revolutionary in the sense that he's walking around with a torch demanding the government being overthrown by force. He's just an intellectual who stands up and says, yeah, that's not right. I don't think that's right. <laughs> what you're doing makes no sense. And so they send him to the Gulag for a long time. And he writes about his experience in the Gulag. There's a $9 abridged version as well. Oh, there you go. Be Too bad there's not one with like footnotes and, and study notes and stuff. It's That'd a be bestseller cool. because uh, it, it comes up with all the Jordan Peterson links. <laughs> oh, does it? There you yeah. go. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Peterson always recommends that too, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Dostoevsky. He's my favorite author, along with Steinbeck and Cormac McCarthy. And Flannery O'Connor is my favorite ever. But uh, I love Dostoevsky. And because uh, he is a Christian, but he lives in a system where Christianity is disintegrating around him. Right. And Marxism is on the rise and is popular. And anarchism is on the rise and is popular. And, and he's a gambling addict and an alcoholic. And, He's a fascinating character. If you read Crime and Punishment, I, it, it's kind of anecdotal. Yeah. It's kind of anecdotal uh, in a certain sense. All of his books, all of his novels are anecdotal. He's working through faith matters, working through intellectual stuff, working through his own life. Yeah, well, that's and, the best uh, place to write from. Experience. Uh, well, in Dostoevsky's case, for sure. Same with Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, Flannery O'Connor, for sure. 
Uh, Cormac McCarthy, he he definitely drifts deep, deep into mystic realism. Yeah, um, I, I do not know what's going on in his head. Um, well, as much as he writes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's enough. Exactly. But uh, no, I definitely check out Demons in the Gulag Archipelago if you want to just get a snapshot of how this this myth of progress, when it's combined with Marxism, what it what it kind of plays itself out as historically. It's fascinating stuff. Probably probably a good good project for a, for a school paper too. All right. So, anyways, uh, that was the first sentence. <laughs> Let's keep going. Freed from the. I feel like we're, this is like a, a Donnie Darko type of mm. podcast. Mm. It's, it's like you can be entertained by it, but upon multiple viewings, you'll find several layers of meaning. It's a mad, mad, mad world. Yeah. It is. Uh, freed from the impossible burden of being God, faith lets God be the creator and the human person be the creature. Mm-hmm. This is not an easy task. <laughs> As I say to uh, my my people all the time, it's 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 simple. It's just not easy. Not Christianity is simple. We we make it confusing. And as as Kolb and Aaron point or Aaron point out, it's it's not an easy task. It's simple to say it. Faith lets God be the creator and the person, you know, me be uh, be the creature. It, it's just not in practice. It, it's a little bit more difficult. Right. Luther even contended that belief in the creator and creation is the loftiest and most difficult article to believe. Above Would, the crucifixion. Oh, heck yeah. Because the crucifixion is a historical fact. Yeah, that's is right. A, is a singular point in time. Mm-hmm. You either believe that he actually was crucified or you don't. Yeah, and third article too. You've, I mean, you've got your church, you've got your faith. And yeah. So you have a connection point there. Well, the specificity of the gifts, right? Mm-hmm. That where's the where's the spirit active at? There, there, and there. Okay, good, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Versus creation, and uh, if you uh, mm-hmm. go to the Instagram page for uh, Nature is Metal, or what's the what's my favorite my new favorite one? I think it's called Animal Melee or something. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, my, I have a new. I, I love these channels. Uh, our friend Pastor Fanker now is obsessed with Nature is Metal too. He, st- he texted me last night about it. Yeah, uh, what's super, super Animal Malay. Super Animal Is it Instagram Malay, or just YouTube? Melee. This is Instagram. Okay. I'm watching a bear right... Oh, no, this is snow leopards devouring a yak. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, super Animal... Is it pronounced Melee or Malay? I can I never... Melee. Melee. Everybody... Melee? Yeah, Melee. Melee. Thank you. I prefer Melee. That's the way I was raised to pronounce just it. Just like Super Smash Brothers Melee. Thank you. Exactly. That's actually where I was corrected by someone when I was playing that. I'm like, oh, Super Smash Brothers Melee. Wow. Look at you plucking plucking at my uh, memories, my memories threads. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Google, but whatever. There we go. Super Animal <laughs> Melee. Thank you. Um, so there you go. Uh, check out Super Animal Melee if you're in. Because this is the thing about the first article. Second article, Jesus. All gospel. Third article, all gospel. First article. A bear running down a deer in your backyard and eating it alive while you watch from your patio. Oh, there's some disturbing stuff on here. Right? That's Nature is Metal. Last night, I think they posted this. That this person, there's a grizzly bear in this person's backyard devouring a deer. And it's like, that's, you see that, you don't say, God is awesome. (laughs) You don't say, I I feel so blessed. Or maybe he is awesome. Just, you know, just in the Mm -hmm. like, wow, let's watch these animals devour each other kind of way. Yeah, 
It's like God, Earth is Thunderdome and God is <laughs> Tina Turner. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, mental image. Stop. I know, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. But rather, when you look at the first article, when you look at creation, and we're going to get to a block quote that they use from Luther for this, this is very illustrative of this point. If you... From the safety of your home, for example, it may be easy. If you will go for a walk in the park, it may be easy. If you go to a KOA campsite, it may be easy. But walk 10, 12, 20 miles into the Boundary Waters Canoe area, Hmm. uh, Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness, like where I I lived in Ely, where I graduated from high school. And uh, the one time when I was uh, 13, I got lost in the woods. I got lost in the woods 100 yards from my house. And we ran into a, a moose and... uh we didn't see the moose. We heard the moose. And it's terrifying because that's really when you understand Genesis 3. Yeah. When you're naked and exposed out there like that and you realize you're not the apex predator, Mm-mm. all of a sudden you're you're looking for a tree to hide behind because that moose is coming and you know it's in a bad mood and you know that there's no God out there in the woods that's going to save you should that moose decide to charge. Right, Exactly. There's just no forgiveness out there. Mm-mm. There's no grace in the in the wilderness, in the in nature. And this is a part of the human project, of course, is to get ourselves as far away from our creatureliness as is possible. I was reading an interesting uh, article the other day that pointed out that we measure the intelligence of animals by their ability to obey our commands. Hmm. We also do the same with kids in school. Uh-huh. It's true. And it... it I've I've been chewing on that ever since I read it because it, it was one of those things I read and it just punched me right in the eyes. Like, just bam. And I was like, oh, that's true. And maybe the true measure of intelligence is that they don't immediately obey you. Hmm. You you can't domesticate a killer whale. Yeah. Which isn't a whale, it's a dolphin. But, yeah, it was like um, the, the <laughs> um, old Apple computer. Uh, what was there? It was a marketing slogan where they had... Uh, you know, all the famous thinkers. Yeah. Uh, and it was yeah, think, yeah. think different, probably, I think was the slogan. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, it was think different. Yep. But but there was a great there was a great video uh, that they showed at Macworld or wherever, uh, <laughs> right. you know, and it's and it was like, you know, basically, you know, we think, how did they say it? Uh, I lost it now. You know, thank you to the rebels, I think is how it went. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something. Which is funny because uh, one of my favorite comedians makes fun of that commercial. Because oh, yeah. he goes, Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Steve Jobs. That's right. <laughs> Think different. <laughs> Nerd Jesus. It's like, what does Steve Jobs have in common with Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., and Gandhi? <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> he eats pretentious fruit like pears and then tells other people to make his dreams become reality. <laughs> Think different. He's st- he, for all of his ideas, he was still your corporate overlord. <laughs> ah, it was, here's to the crazy ones. That's, what That's it. Yeah, you're right. Think That's different the was the punchline, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So let's jump into the Luther quote. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. 
they push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. <laughs> there it is. There it is. That I did not know a... that was going to play through the speakers. That's, that's that was pretty fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> now I, I know. <laughs> in, a, in a certain sense, I feel like that should be our, our bump music going out of the podcast. <laughs> Here's to the crazy ones. <laughs> uh, so to the to the text then, to Luther, they quote Luther. This is from uh, the Weimar Ausgabe, volume 24, 18, 26 through 33. Without doubt, the highest article of faith is that in which we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, or I believe in God the Father, comma, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and whoever rightly believes that is already helped and set right and brought back to that from which Adam fell. Whoa. <laughs> First of all, kudos to Luther for getting the comma in the right place in that creedal confession. It's, I believe in God the Father, comma, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Mm. It was changed later <laughs> to God the Father Almighty, comma, creator of heaven and earth. Yeah. It's a, it's a semantic detail, but theologically, as a Lutheran, it actually does make a difference. You want to attach his his might to his create, creating. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Well, that's why the comma was moved. Mm -hmm. Is rather than God the Father, comma, Almighty creator of heaven and earth, it lumps Father with Almighty but what it does is it basically takes the revealed God and the hidden God and puts them side by side. Oh, my. This is like a whole other podcast. Yeah, I know, right? It's Jesus who introduces us to God as Father. As we said in the beginning of the podcast about John, where the, the accusation against Jesus for blasphemy was he, he not only claims to be on equal footing with God, but he has the audacity to refer to God as his Father. Wow. That without Jesus, you can't call God. Don't, don't go to a mosque. And start talking about Allah is your father. <laughs> don't talk to an Orthodox Jew that Yahweh is your father. That don't fly. Mm -mm. The audacity of a Christian to read the Old Testament and go, that's my dad. <laughs> yeah. Is wholly because of Jesus who introduces us to the father versus the almighty God of heaven and earth, which is the God of Muslims, Jews, polytheists, deists, you name it. It's the hidden God. Yeah. Anywho, I believe in God the Father, comma, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Whoever believes this is already helped and set right and brought back to that from which Adam fell. Hmm. This is why in my teaching, uh, when people talk to me or ask me the question, what will heaven be like? I always say, well, according to the prophet, Genesis 2, mm -hmm. that it's not some otherworldly Xanadu. But rather, it's not Oz. No. But rather, if you read Isaiah, for example, it is Genesis 2. That is the true restoration of creation, the regeneration and renewal of creation, is to restore creation to that which was destroyed by Adam's rebellion. Yeah. And therefore, in relation to what we're reading, once you are justified by faith in Christ, once Jesus introduces you to God as Father, then you see creation for what it is in its fallen state, and yet it is revealed to you that creation itself is good, mm. because God has named it such. And therefore, it is going, it is, as a woman caught in the pains of childbirth, yearning for the final revelation. Yeah. 
the birthing of the new creation. And therefore, if you simply sweep away everything that we have done to try and annihilate ourselves, <laughs> what will be left at the last day is a Genesis 2 world. This is exactly what Isaiah describes when he says, the child puts its hand in the hole of the adder, the lion lays down with the lamb, and so forth and so on. That's Genesis 2. That's what it is. And so if you want to know what the future is, you have to look backwards. Yeah. And yeah. justification by faith in Christ makes that possible, reveals that to us. Right. The focal point changes, though, right, from the garden yeah. um, to, to the garden of paradise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Whereas, because the, the lamb upon his throne is the focal point of the, uh, of of what we would call heaven, I suppose, right? Well, that's the point, though, is that in Genesis one and two, if you don't see the lamb of God on his throne, mm. you're miss you're missing the point. You only see a tri- tree of knowledge of good and evil. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Versus what Paul says in Ephesians that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he was there the whole time. He was there the whole time. Exactly. He was there the whole time. This is the point of the parable of the seeds and the Mm -hmm. sower, Mm -hmm. is that he's been in the world since creation. We don't take Jesus into the world. Jesus is already in the world as the word of God. Mm. Rather, he reveals himself to us. Mm. He reveals himself to faith in such a way that we recognize, oh, the lamb has been on his throne since creation itself. Mm. And that we don't recognize Jesus in Genesis 1 and 2 because we're not looking for him. Now we're getting into metaphysics. Right. Well, he has to reveal himself to us. Yeah. That's the point. Because the word that says, let there be light, is the second person of the Trinity. <laughs> Therefore, there he is. There's the lamb on his throne. And time for the mind-blown meme. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the Luther quote. Huh? Uh, but those who came to the point of fully believing that he is the God who creates and makes all things are few. Because such a person must be dead to all things, to good and evil, death and life hell, and heaven, and must confess from the heart that he can do nothing of his own strength. I believe that I cannot believe by my own reason or strength in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gift, sanctified, so forth and so on. Notice how within the context of the first article, Luther actually cites the third article of the Creed, Mm -hmm. which is why Dr. Nagel had his students start with the third article of the Creed and work backwards into it. Because the Spirit reveals the Christ, and the Christ reveals God is the Father. And the Father reveals both the Spirit and Christ. Yeah, that's also John's Gospel. (laughs) Exactly. So Mm -hmm. therefore, the Trinity is always pointing at the other persons of the Trinity. Mm. And yet, one God. This is why then the authors Mm. ask the question, why is it so hard to believe what Luther says here in the first article, that he claims this is the hardest article to believe? Because it is the essence of our sinfulness that we want to be in control. We want to play God. Mm. This goes back to our whole point about neo-Marxist, postmodernist, the Nietzschean death of God uh, movement, and how this is all simply a reaction, a rebellion against our hatred of God. This Darwinian Mm. myth of progress is all to say God messed up, Mm. that we we are created incomplete. There does seem to be a tension, though. Um, as creatures, we've also been gifted with uh, creativity, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that we can create um, as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, so the challenge is: do we use those creative impulses, I suppose, for for the purposes that God gave them, or are they used, sure. you know, to to undermine um, faith, God, Jewish, right. you know, world? And I would say, within the Lutheran confession, it would be both. 
mm. at the same time. Yeah. And of course, the danger is when we start applying a materialist ethic to that conversation, because we want to measure what is and isn't a good usage of our God-given skills and talents and abilities. Right. And then we start adding up who's using them more or less, better or worse, mm. and separate out Christians. And then we start creating, again, our utopian version of the perfect church society, the mission society, the church body, whatever it may be. Yeah. So why is it so hard to believe? Because it's the essence of our sinfulness to want to be God. Thus, in his large catechism, Luther recognized that few believe that God is truly creator and Lord. Most pass over that fact and give it no thought. Quote, if we believed it with our whole heart, we would also act accordingly and not swagger about and boast and brag as if we had life, riches, power, honor, and such things of ourselves, as if we ourselves were to be feared and saved. Large Catechism Creed 21 mm -hmm. in the Book of Concord, 433. Yeah, look at me, senpai. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is such an interesting point, and I don't want to go past it and forget about it, where Luther says, those who came to the point of fully believing that he is the God who creates and makes all things are few, because such a person must be dead to everything. You must be dead to good and evil. You must be dead to death and life, dead to hell and heaven, and must confess from the heart that he can do nothing of his own strength. Yeah. Which doesn't seem to be freedom on the surface, right? It seems, right. It seems to be a kind of slavery, like like you have to go into this bondage that you, you yeah. are nothing. But if we go back to the man born blind that Jesus heals, mm -hmm. he is the only free person on the side of the road that day when Jesus walks by. Mm -hmm. Because he's the only one who in hope cries out for the abundance mm -hmm. that he believes is available to him because of Jesus. Son of David, Lord, have mercy on me. Whereas the crowds, because they function out of a place of scarcity, an attitude of scarcity, a theology of scarcity, all they can focus on is the good and bad of this person's cry, hmm. the, the, the death and life, how that's weighed in the scales of justice, the balance, heaven and hell. And yet to abandon all of those categories and simply say, it is not I, but uh, you who must do all things. Yeah. That is actually the purpose of the Christian life is to not just confess that I can do nothing of my own strength, but actually embody it. Yeah. It's one of the, probably the most disturbing uh, sayings from St. Paul is he's talking about, you know, it's better for me to die and to be with the Lord. And you're like, now, right. wait a minute. I mean, he, he, throughout his, throughout his ministry, he seems to embrace the idea that, that death and hell and suffering and pain, evil, mm -hmm. that he said, that these are also gifts. Mm -hmm. And it is as much as you know from the God, the God the Father, from the Almighty Creator, as much right. as as much as heaven and life and and uh, good. Well, yeah. and in relation to our Heavenly Father, in relation to the first article, we're also shown that my definitions of good and evil <laughs> are like God's definitions of good and evil, but they are not God's definition of good and evil. And that all, most of the time, almost all the time the thing that I call good is actually evil to God, and what I call evil is actually good to God. This is Luther's point in the Heidelberg Disputation. What we call good is actually a mortal sin, mm. and what we call evil is actually a godly work. Yeah, it's just another way that we want to be in control. Right, exactly. And therefore, it's not a matter of, well, once we're justified, we can get our antenna straightened out and we can participate in, in our salvation or participate in our, our sanctification or godliness by doing the good and avoiding the bad. No. 
because as St. Paul says in Romans 7, we don't even understand our own actions. Mm-mm. And therefore, rather than say, this is good, this is bad, this is going to save my life, this is going to cause me to die, we abandon all that and say, I I can't do anything, I don't know anything. It's all by the grace of God that I Mm -hmm. live, die, do good, whatever. Um, And that, yes, God tempts no one to sin, but my flesh, the world, and the devil do more than an adequate job of that. Yeah, that's true. And again, in a Western materialist worldview, there is no such thing as demons. Mm. There are no powers Mm. and principalities at work. There is no reality outside of my five senses. Mm. Which is why we wrestle with each other and not against our actual enemy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And this this is why this article is so difficult, because you can't just go to the Lord's table when you're out doing something, playing football, and you break your leg. And you wonder, how could this have happened to me? Now I can't work anymore. Now I can't go work out anymore. Now I can't get to church because I can't drive myself. What am I going to do? Who's going to take care of me? I don't have any health insurance. Mm-hmm. All of, just because you, you did something that ever, that human beings do, and as a consequence, you broke your leg. Hmm. Versus someone drives in, you know, drives a vehicle into a crowd of people. Yeah. In the name of their God. Yeah. And you ask, well, where was God when this happened? <laughs> he was the one who was being run over. <laughs> because that man didn't that man didn't hate you, he hated God. He hated his God, first of all. Yeah. And more importantly, he hated the real God, the true God. And therefore, since he can't climb up into heaven and, and re crucify Jesus, he just chose to do the next best thing, which is to destroy that for which he died. Mm-hmm. And this is what we've been doing since the very beginning. Yeah, so that's the negative side of it, and then there's the positive side of it, right? Yeah, and the positive side of this, the progressive side of this is I can just climb a mountain and worship Jesus. Right. And I, I can attain anything I want. I can, I can be anything I want to be, right? Right, which is Nietzschean, right? That's the ironic thing, is the very person who basically got God out of the way so we could be self-creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we adopt his, his philosophies into our theology, yeah. which creates space for us to essentially create ourselves in our own image and call it godly. Yeah, he saw, you know, whatever you want to call it, Judeo-Christian concept of God to be... Well, he's a pastor's kid. What can you expect? Yeah, he saw it as limiting. That's right. Typical pastor's kid. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Being oppressed by his father who is too strict. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, and Ludwig Feuerbach, another famous uh, Lutheran pastor's kid, Mm -hmm. uh, read the large catechism, read this stuff that we're actually talking about and concluded that we are all gods. Which is actually a very uh, Eastern uh, philosophical point, which I'm probably sure he got some from that, because it was about that time that this was making real headway into Europe, Eastern mm. philosophy, mm. that reading your God is whoever you fear, love, and trust more than anything, Feuerbach said, well, that'd be me. Yeah. And there's no one I love more than myself. There's nobody I trust more than myself. There's, sef- there's definitely no one that I fear more than my own mind, my own my own feelings, my own wants and needs and desires. And therefore, what is holding me back from realizing, well, essentially what Jesus realized, that's kind of where they go with this, is that Jesus realized his godness potential and therefore achieved ultimate enlightenment. And this is their move too, is when you combine Eastern philosophy, for example, this positive philosophy, positivistic philosophy with Christianity, what is the ultimate point of life? Well, it's to become as close to Jesus as you can. 
Yeah. Again, the myth of progressive sanctification. Yep, that's where I was going with it. Well, I was going to say, we project this backwards onto the Reformation, but it's an extremely modern invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it has very deep roots. Because we all want to believe we're getting better. We all want to become more and more godlike. This is why the myth of the hero is so powerful to this day. And the hero's journey is such a powerful narrative to this day because it serves an ex- as an example for us of how we reach our true potential. Mm-hmm. And how we ch- achieve our true potential is we self-create. That we are all yep. heroes. We simply have to realize it and act upon it. Yeah. So even if no one else fears us or serves us, uh, we fear and serve ourselves. hundred <laughs> percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why this is so hard to believe because on the negative side, we just discussed it, but there's also the positive side. There's these two ditches and the middle path is Jesus. The middle path is complete and utter passivity actually. Yeah. Dead to all things. Dead to all things to say good, bad, indifferent. It's all the same to me. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) And the name of the Lord is Jesus too. So, yeah. But it depends, going back to what we started with, do you function out of a, 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 a language of scarcity or do you come out of a language of abundance? Hmm. If you come out of a, a theology of scarcity, then you will attempt to usher in a world that is recreated in your image or the image of your group. Okay. If you come from a place of abundance and it's all gift, then even your neighbor who's, in, who's sick, at work, crabby, being super rude to you serves as an opportunity to recognize God in your neighbor and to uh, practice compassion, to practice humility, to say, I'm not going to meet force with force. I'm not going to shame you and try and one up you and make you feel bad because you're making me feel bad, but rather simply to recognize here's one for whom Jesus died, who hates her job, who is sick, who'd rather be at home on the, on the couch, you know, recuperating, but she can't because she has bills to pay. And she hates everything about her life right now. Hmm. And for her, nothing is gift. <laughs> hmm. All that she knows about abundance is all of the mucus in her head right now. That's all yeah. she's got. Yeah. And what can I do for her to not add to her burden? Mm-hmm. Well, I can not be a jerk. I can simply say, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And understand that nothing you say or do is going to make her feel better. Yeah. And uh, so simply be gracious and walk away. Yeah. So if we believed it with our whole heart, we would also act accordingly and not swagger about and boast and brag as if we had life and riches and power and honor and such things of ourselves as if we ourselves were to be feared and served. That's Luther. Moreover, the devil would divert us from putting things into God's hands by inciting covetousness and lust and would resist our trust by throwing up obstacles in its way through trouble and adversity. Hmm. This is also the point of when we talk about how to use your baptism. Oh, yes. In your vocation. This is exactly where you use your baptism in your vocation. When there's trouble and adversity, when the devil attacks you, when your own sinful flesh is driving you into covetousness and lust, and you resist the gospel, you reject this language of abundance that there is no flood of grace coming your way, blah, 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 it's all hopeless. Uh, Or you don't need God as much as you used to because you progressed, whatever it may be, is... You use your baptism by acknowledging, I'm helpless. Mm-hmm. I, I can do nothing of my own strength. Yeah, dead to sin, as we say. Dead to sin, dead to myself, dead to the world, in the world, but not of the world, mm-hmm. to live as Christ, to die as gain. All of that is simply to say, I'm a baptized child of God, 
And even if I am, even if I die today, I won't die, but I'll live mm-hmm. because Jesus is my life. That the life that I live is lived entirely by faith in the son of God who gave himself for me, mm-hmm. sacrificed his life for me. I read that so, somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Uh, make a cool meme, I think. <laughs> Inspirational. Yeah. But <laughs> actually, this reminds me, uh, speaking of a negative view of creation, I just read that Aeschylus, this Greek philosopher Aeschylus, he, was, he died in 458 BC. He was, as the story goes, he was killed by a tortoise. Do you know uh, this story? No. How do you get killed by so a tortoise? He, so eagles pick up tortoises off the, the beach, and then they, they fly straight up, and then they drop them under rocks which smashes the shell and kills the tortoise. And then they fly back down and they can eat the tortoise. Makes sense. And uh, as the story goes, Aeschylus was bald and the eagle mistaked Aeschylus for a rock (laughs) and dropped the tortoise and it hit Aeschylus in the head and killed him. Hmm. Which is another example of how a metal nature is. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I could just imagine the eagle laughing. Right. Well, I laughed. I mean, I'm sorry, Aeschylus, but <laughs> but that's pretty. That's pretty cool. That that is pretty entertaining. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's crazy. You're lost, <laughs> just, but yeah, that's crazy. But then I also woke up this morning, and the first thing I saw when I turned on my phone was a car in outer space. Yes, <laughs> the, the spaceman is uh, driving his car. <laughs> Elon Musk finally realized his dream. <laughs> There's a, that his Although car I don't, I think he wanted it to land on Mars. So he does. Well, baby steps, baby steps to the elevator. You we'll know. get that. We'll get there. There'll be a oh, Tesla. Of course, he will. Vehicle on Mars. It's, I mean, it, yeah. It took me minutes to realize it wasn't uh, uh, Photoshop, and that was being live streamed. <laughs> yeah, that was being live streamed. <laughs> it just blew my mind because I was it's, like, "Wait, that's the Earth behind this car. car. This must be a car space. commercial." <laughs> and this is happening right now. Yes. Oh, and, and by I, the way, the Earth is round. <laughs> yes, and then as I as I said to you earlier, I it was on it was on the the Instagram account of people that are flat Earthers. Mm-hmm. So I immediately thought, oh, they're just using this to show. Oh, look, it's photoshopped. But then uh, friends of mine who are not flat Earthers were posting it, and I realized, oh, it's a live stream. And I was like, holy cow! There's a guy in a car in outer space. Because apparently Elon Musk can do that kind of stuff. So. Hey, power to him. <laughs> but that's where we are in the year of our Lord, 2018. Uh, there's an astronaut in a car in outer space. Yeah. Because we can I, do that now. I mean, I do think he can boast and brag a little bit about that. That, that is pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Uh, but like the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin said when he came back, mm. um, he was asked if he saw God when mm. he was up there orbiting the Earth. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, of course not. Which, as a good Russian, of course he's going to say that. Yeah, that's true. He could have seen the, he could have seen the Death Star up there and he wouldn't have said boo. <laughs> hmm. He's a good Soviet. But well, anyway. well, Mr. Musk thinks the whole thing's a simulation anyway. That's true. Well, we could even argue that from a biblical, theological perspective if we wanted to. <laughs> in the sense of, we do have a programmer. <laughs> Just not in the pantheistic sort of way, the kind of God as clockmaker sort of way, which yeah. I think is really what simulation theory is, is just a postmodern take on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there is, but that still begs the question, who's the programmer? Mm. And, and can we can we uh, rejigger the 
you know, the gears of the watch. Right. Well, that's the Rick and Morty episode, right? Where Rick creates an entire universe to power his car mm. and then finds out that the reason his battery doesn't work anymore is because the, the people inside his car battery invented, <laughs> invented a universe of people to power them. <laughs> Who then right. you find out so they, they were no longer you know, generating it's, power. It's inception, yeah. right? Yeah. And each subsequent universe discovers that the, their whole purpose for existing is to power somebody's car. And charge their cell phone. And and charge the cell phone. That's one of my favorite episodes ever. I love that episode. I have seen that one more than once. Oh, it's a must protect summer. <laughs> yes. Must protect summer. Yeah. Deploying psychological measures. Rick and Morty may be the most accurate portrayal of postmodern Western materialistic thought that's, that's, that's going right now because it is so spot on with its understanding of physics and modern culture and nihilism. And I think we just, and, did, did we just shift into the recommendation section of the show? Did we? I don't know. I can't, I, I here's the thing. I can't ever really recommend <laughs> Rick and Morty. Not to children, not to adults. My wife leaves the room. <laughs> it's a, it's definitely a particular kind of humor. Let's put it that way. Mm. There, there's levels to geek humor, and Rick and Morty is high level, like kung fu geek humor for sure. In fact, there's a whole YouTube channel dedicated to breaking down each Rick and Morty episode uh, and pointing out all of the the scientific references in the episodes yeah and philosophical references yeah and there's wiki there's uh wikias on that oh it's it's mind-boggling how dense those episodes are for quote-unquote just a a cartoon right um yeah it's amazing and their critique of pop culture the critique of modern society their critique of science um the way they play with physics and quantum physics within the context of the narrative I know, if, I know if I was having a psychological break, it would definitely be in a Shoney's. A hundred percent. That is so true. <laughs> I had forgotten about Shoney's until... That's right. That's right. Oh, no. Um, yeah, so since we're there, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Rick, and, Rick and Morty, for those of you who like uh, really dark science-based humor... Uh, it's so clever though. It really is. It's, it's clever and yet really lowbrow humor simultaneously. But, uh, I'm going to, here's my shout outs. Good, bad flicks. The YouTube Mm. channel, good, bad flicks. Love it. Uh, Love, love everything he does on good, bad flicks. He basically just goes back and reviews really bad or really good, bad movies. Uh, that's fantastic. Good, bad flicks. Riff tracks. If I'm I, not mistaken, correct me. Isn't aren't isn't that the guys from MST3K? It is. It is. It's been on. It's been. They've been doing that for for yeah. They've been doing years. it for a while. It's just. And I think I knew about it. I just never got into it. I don't think they and, owned the MST3K property. Right. Right. Because so, they're the robots on the show. The three guys that do it. Joel doesn't do it. It's the three guys who. Yeah. Not everybody robots. came over. Yeah. But Rift Tracks is phenomenal. I love Rift Tracks. My wife even likes Rift Tracks, and she doesn't really like MST3K. Mm-mm, I didn't either. I think it, it's a short form, mm, you know, 17 to 20 minute videos. Maybe that's it. And so it's a little bit easier to take in short doses. Uh, we used to watch MST3K and band tours on the bus where you're stuck for three, four, five hours with nothing to do. Really? That's the perfect place to watch MST3K is when you're stuck on a bus on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you can't get off. 
That's mm. when you watch those kinds of things. Okay. But Rift, Rift Tracks is definitely, um, it's Mystery Science Theater, theater 3000 for ADD people. Mm. Uh, and this, I just sent you this video this morning. I just discovered this yesterday. Uh, we watched two of them last night. Uh, it's called What Makes a Song Great. It's oh, a yeah. channel on YouTube. Yeah, Mind boggling. Mind bogglingly great channel. Who is, where who this is the guy, creator of this? A, he must be a producer a, and yeah. a Well, he's obviously a musician because he plays all the instruments. Right. But a producer. And what's really fascinating is he he either has the software or he got a hold of. No, he's got the stems. That's what those are He's got the stems. And so he's able to isolate each track on a song. Mm-hmm. And what he does is, what makes the song great is he picks a song. So he picks Nirvana, he picks uh, Jeremy by Pearl Jam, he picked uh, every, um, Everything She Does Is Magic by The Police. Mm-hmm. And he breaks it down uh, part by part, explains why he thinks this song is great. He then plays the music on the instruments right. live. Right. Then he will put up the sheet music so you can see like the vocal technique of the singer mm-hmm. and then break down what's so remarkable about the vocals and the compositions and so forth and so on and then put it all back together again. And if you're a musician or you just love music, this is, this is the YouTube channel for that really scratches that itch. Yep. If you really like getting into the minutia of a song, like Jeremy, I watched the first one we watched was Jeremy. I know that's a great video. I never, ever listened to that song and thought this is a really complex song, a really mm. complex composition. But then as he breaks it down, <laughs> and I never knew that was a bass guitar at the beginning of that song. I thought that was Stone Gossard hitting harmonics on his guitar. And it was just down tuned or something. Yeah. But you're like, oh no, it's a twelve string bass. He, that, that entire introduction to Jeremy is a twelve string yeah, bass. A hammer. And the end, the outro is a twelve string bass. Right. And then when he talks about the comp- the guitar parts and how they're actually playing in different keys. And the cello. And, and the acoustic and the guitar. Cello and the acoustic guitar parts. And Eddie Vedder jumping octaves. <laughs> yeah. And these vocal patterns. And the drum parts. The drum part was almost the most fascinating thing of the whole thing for me. That Pearl Jam oh, actually right. has the same drum parts in multiple songs. I, I know. That, I, was, I was running doon, in my doon, head. Doon, chuck. And, you're like, and they got that from Jimi Hendrix, from Mitch Mitchell. And you're like, oh, of course they do. Voodoo child. Yeah. 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 It just, yeah, I totally geeked out hard. And Annie, being a professionally trained singer, was like, we're shutting down the house. This, we're watching this. Cool. And then you watch the one by the police, which is the ultimate level of complexity. And composition. Oh, yeah, because, because of their level of musicianship. Oh, please. Relative I mean, to Pearl Jam. Yeah. Those three guys are ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, oh, just. Well, just, just look at how, how often. Um, you don't have to like the police. You can hate Sting for being a pretentious whatever. But when you listen to someone with the level of expertise that this guy has on this channel, what makes a song great, you have to respect how just genius level he is when it comes to composition. Right. It's right. amazing. We miss that with pop music. We don't think about arrangement. Yeah. But I was listening to a podcast with a producer, um, and he was talking about microphone technique and whatnot and how people yeah. always talk about it and like, well, what mics did you use and what preamps did you use? And he's like, it's not that he's not a gearhead, but he's like, when the band comes in, uh, you know, it's it's the production. It's the, it's actually doing the arranging. If they've got a yeah. great arrangement, that's what's going to make the song. It doesn't matter what mics I put up in well, front of it. Well, think about it this way, too, on that point. Here's a good example. Go listen to the Ramones' Rocket to Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then go listen to the album that was produced by Phil Spector. Hmm. And the difference in tone, the difference in composition, the difference in the songs themselves. Hmm. Completely different. What is the name of that album? It slips my mind now. 
Uh, provide a link for it later, would you? Yep. Oh, it's driving me crazy. Um, but check out and go listen to go watch what makes a song great, Jeremy. Then go listen to Pearl Jam Ten again. And if you've never listened to Pearl Jam Ten, Ten, shame on you. Hmm. <laughs> How dare you? As I was explaining to my son this morning, that album Ten and Nevermind changed music. It literally changed the world. End of the seemed, century. That's what you're looking for. Thank you. End of the century. That we don't remember now, especially since I'm old, and these these are old albums. These are classic rock albums. Right. But when when you were there, Nevermind and Ten, when they came out, they didn't just change music. They changed the entire world. Yeah. That we went from a whole bunch of guys with a lot of hairspray in their hair wearing spandex singing in a high falsetto, power chords, power ballads, to... Smells Like Teen Spirit right. and Jeremy and Outshined and Man in the Box. Mm-hmm. It, it literally, those two, it, to give you an idea, after Nevermind came out, go listen to all the bands that came out after Nirvana in the 90s <laughs> and, listen to the, and listen to the guitar work and the drum work. Yeah. Then go listen to 10 by Pearl Jam and then go listen to every band that had a lead singer that was trying to copy Eddie Vedder's vocal style. To this day, before Eddie Vedder, there weren't people running around singing that way. Before no. Lane Staley, Chris Cornell, no. there weren't people singing that way. There just wasn't. Mm. And it completely blew up musical categories when it, came, when it really caught. And it changed the entire decade musically. The direction of the entire decade went after that. Same yeah. thing happened in rap music, actually, too, with things like Naz, Illumatic, um, everything Tribe Called Quest produced, mm-hmm. Most Deaf, mm-hmm. um, Black Star with Def and Talib Kweli. Like, there was something that happened in the early 90s musically that changed everything. And then by the end of the decade, it kind of, it got commoditized and just spun through the cycle so many times and whitewashed. It was Well, and that was the end of the music industry. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. I mean, it's still just, it's still just, it's still spinning out, but no, because you had also the uh, uh, proliferation of inexpensive home recording equipment. Yeah, exactly. That Thank you. That's a good point. Yeah. Yep. But we, we lose that. It's like I was listening to someone talk last night about when you buy an album that was produced in 1971, even if you don't know the musician or the music, it's a pretty good bet. It's an excellent album yeah. because for some reason, 1971 was just a year where yeah. there was an enormous amount of music that was produced that is phenomenal. It's classic stuff. Now, I happen to believe it's because I was born that year. And oh, okay. That was just God's way of saying to the world, I'm here. <laughs> Take credit. It's fine. See, that's why I can never be pretentious, like falsely pretentious, because I laugh at myself at the absurdity of what I say. I wish I had the ability to be falsely pretentious in that way, but sorry, folks, I just can't be because it's, I, I make myself laugh. Yep. Maybe that's my pretentiousness is that I make myself laugh about pretending to be pretentious. Um, but uh, no, it's just, there's certain times right 1970 71 was a huge benchmark in and shift in music and culture and the music changed the culture 1991 92 uh was a huge benchmark uh, musically in the culture changed music and yep. so yep. we're about due we're about due maybe in yep. the 20s something will happen well you know i was uh listen like i mentioned i listened to a recording podcast and uh yeah they mentioned you know great producers who sound nobody can recreate and they just there, there's mm-hmm. a almost a mystery to how they accomplish it, and that one was Dave yeah. Fridman, um, mm-hmm. who records and produces, uh, probably best known for Flaming Lips, but also Mercury Rev. But then yeah. he got he started to work outside those two bands um, more recently, 
I think Mercury Rev was kind of a spinoff from Flaming Lips, if I remember right. But anyway, uh, probably the one that I would refer to is Purple by Baroness. Yo, it's so good. I and, love that album. Now the, the Baroness <laughs> albums are great. And then you hear Purple and you're like, what happened? Because just yeah. the, the sonic scale of it, right? And uh, yeah. that's Dave Fridman. So. Well, I think of that too in relation to Mars Volta. Mars Volta mm-hmm. came out with an album that Rick Rubin produced. Ah, and yeah. and it's considered a classic. Yep. Um, and then after that, they produced their own albums and they never again achieved the level of recognition or popularity or or just critical praise as they did with that Rick Rubin album. No, you need uh, producers. Yeah, that's the Comatorium. That was a great album. Yeah. Oh, so good. And Steve Albini's that way. If you look at Steve Albini's records. Yeah, but he has a cult following. And, and not all of it. Yeah. His, 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 but the thing with Albini as a producer is, a uh, recordist, he would say, he yeah. does both. Um, just get out of the way. Let the band. Right. Let the band do it. Right. You know, just inspire. Yeah, that is that's is his imprint, is that you know what he's going to, he brings that punk aesthetic mm-hmm. with him into that. And he's like, yeah, I'm just getting out of the way. Just yep. create. And his studio space is amazing. Yep. You can see it on um, the Foo Fighters documentary. Um, it's there's Sound City, and then the documentary they made after that, where they tour um, Sonic Stereo. Highways. Sonic, yeah, Sonic Highways. They go to Steve Albini's studio, and he explains why he when he built. They he's also a woodworker, right? Yeah. So he built his studio from the ground up. And electrician, and, yeah, that's electrical electrician, audio, by right. the way. So to know it. he he made he he bought this building that was vertical. Mm-hmm. And he made sure that when he put in all the floors, he didn't finish the, he didn't run them all the way to the drywall, but he left space in between the floor and the wall so that sound could travel vertically through the up and down mm-hmm. and create this very specific sonic imprint in the recording process that you can't capture anywhere else in the world because he designed his studio literally from the ground up to have a certain sound, acoustic quality right. to it, right? Right. And it's amazing. But well, not only that, he's he's had it, Mike's custom design for him. Yeah, right. You know, he he knows what he right. wants. So yep. and then so go let's go. What makes this song great? Then go listen to Pearl Jam ten. Also, the White Buffalo. <clears throat> I came back to him. He he's the only thing I can the only person I can really compare him to is Johnny Cash because of the tone of his voice and his songwriting style. And mm, yeah. the power, the intensity, the immediacy of not only his lyrics, but his compositions and his vocal stylings. The White Buffalo, he's a folk singer, I guess technically folk singer. Um, I, yeah, he's one of those He's one of those guys, singers, he's a singer-songwriter, but he's one of those guys that I love everything he does. Hmm. Every album he makes, I love every song, every cut on the album. And so it's not a matter of whether I think it's going to be good or not. It's just which tracks I'm at, am I going to love more than the other tracks? Kind of like the Black Keys, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I don't like the stuff that the Black Keys did with Danger Mouse. Oh, okay. Uh, I just I don't. I don't like that sound. Hmm. Um, but if you look at uh, El Camino, right? Yep. And Brother. Mm-hmm. Those two albums, oh, they're so good. Mm-hmm. They're just ridiculous. Um but yeah, go check out the White Buffalo. If you if you like folk, if you if you're a Johnny Cash fan, go check it out. Um, I love it. He if you want to get an example, go listen to The Whistler. It's been on different TV shows. It's been in movies. Oh yeah. Um, but he's one of those guys. Everybody knows about him. Who's into music, but he's not really on the popular because he's not country, but he's not folk and he's not rock. <laughs> he's not pop. He's just good. There you go. And I 
And I don't think, in fact, I was just, I, I was listening, uh, watching um, Lost in Vegas and they did a reaction video to the Whistler and they're hip hop guys. And even they loved it. They were just blown away by it. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, he's just one of those, those musicians who jumps genres. There you go. And as I tell people too, when someone's good, they're just good. It doesn't matter what genre they're in. Good is good, period. Um, like it. Like it. Yeah. And then go check out Moon Knight by Jeff Lemire. I've been raving about it. I'm up to issue nine. It's as good, if not better, than any novel I've read. It's just, it's a phenomenal narrative, what he's doing with Moon Knight and the split personality storyline. And is he, the way in which he uses both the art and the narrative, the dialogue, to even make you as a as a reader not quite sure if anything you're reading is true or not is amazing. Nice. And... The, uh, issues six through ten is a is another storyline from what, jumping off of one through five, and he just cuts back and forth between different versions of reality, or maybe not, but you're never quite sure because one of the versions of reality they're making a Moon Knight movie, hmm. and so you're not quite sure if this is taking place in the movie itself or outside the movie in his mind or if it's actual reality, and he constantly within the context of the narrative the art changes back and forth between the different personalities and the different realities. Got it. And he's trying to sort all this out. If any of it's real, if none of it's real, if it's in his mind, if it's not in his mind. And it's a fascinating narrative. And heady stuff. Heady stuff. It is heady stuff. And so if you enjoy comic books and you enjoy good, uh, good ripping yarn, uh, go check out Moon Knight by Jeff Lemire. His run on that is really good. All right. Any, you got any recommendations? No, I gave you mine. Okay, good. Yep. <laughs> Snuck him in there. Well, one. Yeah, purple. Baroness. Purple. Baroness. Uh, three-piece, right? They're a three-piece? Yeah. yeah. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. And and really nerdy-looking guys. That's what's really funny. When I saw them live, I was like, wait a minute. Yep. This does not fit this sound. Yep. Short hair. <laughs> yeah, just three computer-looking geeks. Just, yep. Yeah. yeah. Skinny little dudes. And I just want to point out, we made it through an entire episode without me referencing jujitsu one time. Oh, there you go. One hour and 54 minutes and not one single to reference one. to jujitsu. Thank you. I'm, I'm getting therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, go check out The Genius of Luther's Theology by Robert Kolb and Charles P. Arendt, published by Concordia Publishing House. It's a phenomenal introduction to Luther's Theology, a good overview. And um, yeah, if there's anything you want us to check out, any texts, anything you want us to read on the air, uh, go over. Please uh, subscribe, leave a positive yep. review, leave recommendations, go buy Gillespie's Coffee as children to feed. And, and as always, and, and wait a minute. There's a new feature on the Higher Things website. If you go to the support page, you can actually do a recurring donation. You can oh, that would be phenomenal. I want to support so, our sh- this show. Support the show. Yes, for 100%. Support the show by going to the support page and, and donating. Um, it goes to pay for actually everything that we do for this show. Production, post-production, recording, everything. Yep. Um, buy Gillespie's coffee, especially for your church. Put it in your evangelism outreach budget. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Leave positive reviews because we are as Lutheran as it gets, and we we uh, desire to uh, we covet that number one Lutheran podcast in the world spot. Mm. And it's it's really just between us and like four other podcasts probably. I know. I know. But, <laughs> um, go check out the other. Go check out Gospel Boldly podcast at Higher Things. Mm-hmm. And what else was it? Oh yeah, subscribe and tell you all your friends and family to subscribe to the podcast. Yep. Uh, we love doing it. We love the fact that we get so much positive feedback. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So come back next week for a brand new episode. And as always, I hope we pass the audition. See you. 
like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts, as Lutheran as it gets, Gospeled Boldly, and The Black Cloister. Check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.